0: Today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about evidence from RCTs that have directly compared cash transfers to other types of policy interventions. Um we'll get into that in a bit more detail in a bit, but first just wanted to briefly introduce J-PAL and um what it is that we do exactly. So J-PAL is a research center based at MIT We were founded in 2003 by some people you may have heard of, given the recent uh, news about the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, We work with a network now of about 200 researchers based at universities around the world by their use of randomized evaluations to measure the impacts of social programs and policies. So together, this network has conducted almost 1,000 randomized evaluations in 83 countries around the world, spanning topics... Covering traditional things that we think about as being related to global development, including health and education, but also uh, more innovative areas like firms and gender. And at J-PAL, we do more than just uh, contribute to the generation of this evidence. We also try to connect the dots from research into action. So that involves uh, generating new studies in areas where we're getting questions from policymakers, but we don't have ready answers to share with them, conducting policy outreach to help summarize and synthesize the evidence from these RCTs so that they can actually be used by the people making decisions about these programs every day. Capacity building to help these same partners generate their own randomized evaluations and use the evidence that already exists to inform their program design. And finally, build sort of operations and a system that allows all this work to happen on its own uh, more regularly. We work from our global headquarters at MIT and with a research, with a network of six regional offices based at universities around the world to sort of bring this global knowledge to local contexts by having staff who are in country working directly with policymakers on the priorities that they're dealing with every day. And we also work very closely with Innovations for Poverty Action, which is a sister organization, both sort of in practice and literally because it's led by the sister of Esther Duflo, one of our founders and directors. Um, and we share our network of regional offices at JPAL and country offices at IPA to do this same work on generating and supporting the use of randomized evaluations. So. I will say that um, these are not my most recent slides, but we'll go with it. Um, So I think we're here talking about cash today because there's widespread consensus that cash transfers are a promising strategy for improving lives. Um, There are randomized evaluations and literature reviews that have found that cash transfers are... Uh, impactful in improving consumption, uh, increasing business investment, improving school attendance and the use of health seeking, health promoting behaviors and services. Um, there's also some more recent evidence that they can reduce violence against women. Um, there's also little evidence that cash transfers can, um, that they discourage people, recipients from working and that they, or that they increase spending on temptation goods like alcohol, tobacco, or things like donuts and candy. Um there's also, as I think all of us in this room probably know, quite a lot of discussion these days about cash transfers. And this comes both from interest in the question of universal basic income and whether that is a promising solution to either uh, addressing challenges related to poverty or addressing challenges related to increasing automation and the future of work, but also just a a strong evidence base about cash transfers that uh, many of us are very excited about using and sort of building on. And so with all that, I think we as responsible effective altruists and responsible uh, citizens of global development need to be asking the questions about whether cash transfers are actually better than the alternatives that are available to us. So why might we prefer cash to the alternatives? Um, Cash transfers may entail larger welfare gains on average if beneficiary preferences don't match up with implementer preferences. And we've seen from Alice's talk and the work that ID Insight and GiveWell are doing that this is in fact the case, at least as far as we can tell today. Um, So thinking about uh, making sure that we're matching the preferences of the people we're trying to help as much as possible. Uh, There's also a possibility that cash transfers lead to less distortion of local markets if we're not adding in new goods that could be produced by those markets themselves and instead allowing people to engage with the markets more, more effectively. Um, Cash might also involve less stigma for recipients if they are able to sort of conceal the cash that they're receiving or it's not associated with necessarily being part of a development program. Uh, And finally, cash is quite efficient in most places. Uh, It's easy to administer, especially when solutions like mobile money and other sort of direct deposit uh, options are around. There are, of course, uh, reasons that we might not prefer cash transfers to the alternative. So in-kind or sort of cash-plus interventions uh, might be preferable if policymakers want to change a particular behavior or increase consumption of a particular good. This is, of course, a question that we have to ask about who gets to make those choices. But if the goal is to increase uh, education or consumption of one particular thing, it might make sense to be doing interventions that are more targeted to those specific outcomes. Um, If there are market failures that prevent transfers from having the maximal impact, so if it's really costly or even impossible for recipients to use cash to purchase something like a business training program, it might make more sense to be delivering that program directly rather than giving cash and expecting recipients to invest in it if they can't. Um, There are different levels of bargaining power within a household. So in some cases we think about this for women or for children. If we're trying to improve outcomes for those specific groups, if they're going to have to decide within their household how to spend cash, it might make more sense to actually give just the goods that don't require those sort of decision-making uh discussions. Um, similarly, self-targeting is a lot more likely with things like in-kind or programmatic uh, transfers rather than cash. So if we don't have the resources or the ability to identify eligible uh, recipients of our program, it might make more sense to have them do it themselves by having them have to sign up for or just go out and collect in-kind or other types of transfers. Um, there's some evidence that cash Uh, Could affect overall price levels. This is particularly relevant in markets that are quite isolated from other markets around them. If cash is just not a politically viable option, we still want to, of course, be doing things that can be helpful. And finally, cash may be less secure than in-kind transfers because it might be easier to steal. For instance, it's, you know, quite portable. So... When we have these questions, of course, we want to turn to the evidence, and today I'm going to be sharing results from 17 RCTs across 11 countries that are directly comparing cash to other policy options. So we'll discuss uh, in-kind business grants versus unconditional cash grants, in-kind food or food vouchers, uh, multifaceted programs that many of us are familiar with under the name of the graduation approach or graduation programs, and one example uh, that looked at insurance versus cash transfers for farmers. A quick caveat before we dive in, this presentation summarizes evidence from these RCTs, and it draws on broader literature reviews and sort of broader evidence about cash transfers to highlight a few key points for people who are interested in designing, implementing, and funding programs to reduce poverty. We are not trying to make any claims about what is definitely the most cost-effective intervention, uh, definitely the most effective intervention. We're really just trying to get a sense of what the evidence says today, um, and if nothing else, provide a nice sort of lit review for others to use to do more work like what GiveWell does. So if we look for sort of at, at three broad types of impacts that we might care about, the first is on nutrition and food consumption. Both cash and food transfers have been found in RCTs to improve food intake and nutrition outcomes like dietary diversity and number of calories consumed. Uh, There are few evaluations that find significant impacts on anthropometric outcomes like height for age or weight for age, and some hypotheses for why include low statistical power to measure these outcomes or, um, you know alternative things that are going on in the environment that prevent increased improved nutritional intake from actually having impacts on health. So something like poor water and sanitation in a particular area might prevent children or others from absorbing nutrients from more nutritious food. There's also some evidence that adding behavior change counseling does improve the impacts on these outcomes, which might suggest that there's something to do with information or something else going on within a household that uh, might prevent the anthropometric outf- outcomes from being seen from just the giving the transfers alone. We also see that uh, cash recipients, as we might expect, tend to purchase a wider variety of items beyond food when they have a choice about what they can purchase. Um, And we see also that the impacts on which specific foods are consumed vary both by transfer modality and by context. So a big question is about the baseline level of calorie consumption. In many cases, if households have a very, very low initial level of calorie consumption, we see some evidence that households prefer to increase the quantity of calories they consume before increasing the quality of the calories they consume. So that would have implications for the differential impacts of cash versus in kind food. Um, we also need to think about whether food transfers are infra marginal, meaning that they 're providing food that households would purchase anyway or extra marginal, meaning that they 're providing some amount of food that 's on top of what the households would purchase uh, if they had the same amount of cash so that again will affect the differential impacts. And then we have to think about just how well markets are functioning, how easy it is to purchase the food that would be given in the food basket in that particular context. Because, of course, if it's not easy to purchase something like uh, improved grains in a particular area, then giving those grains will be more effective at increasing their consumption than giving cash. Shifting gears a little bit into thinking about business investment, we see largely that the effects of cash versus in-kind or training programs vary by the type of entrepreneur who is being targeted. So for micro entrepreneurs in Sri Lanka and Mexico, uh, and this this first program in Ghana on the slide, these are all programs that give micro entrepreneurs either in-kind assets for their business or a, a cash grant of the same amount of money. In Sri Lanka and Mexico, the researchers found positive impacts on profits and no difference between cash and in-kind grants. In Ghana, on the other hand, researchers found that cash was less effective than in-kind grants. And when they looked into why that might be, they found that self-control might be at play uh, sort of when people receive cash, they have a harder time keeping it invested in the business than if it's an asset that is purchased particularly for the business. So interesting to think about what that means for programming. Uh, for a different study in Ghana that was working with small-scale tailors, uh, researchers tested cash grants versus personalized consulting services and found that both had similar impacts on investment in the business, but that neither was able to increase profits overall. And the hypothesis there is that uh, the grants and the consulting allowed the entrepreneurs to sort of test out either new investments in their business or new business strategies, but that after a little while they just reverted to what they were doing before the program was implemented. In a Kenya, on the other hand, a program that gave young women either cash grants or sort of support to op- operate micro franchises of pretty popular uh, businesses in that region found that each program had similar impacts on How many hours women spent in self-employment and on their incomes, but that both of these effects sort of faded out after about two years. So similar impacts and quite large impacts on income right at the beginning, but faded out over time. And then we also see broadly that if we're thinking about farmers, risk is a bigger constraint to investment in farms and in improving farm productivity than credit is. So one study in Ghana found that cash grants had limited effects on farm investment, but that providing sort of rainfall insurance, which allowed farmers to cope with the risk that you know, weather might affect their farm poorly in a particular season, did the insurance allowed them to increase their investment in their farm. And finally, we look at this sort of broader set of programs, which are multifaceted programs with more diffuse goals in in mind. So if we think about graduation-style programs, which are designed to have multiple components that address overlapping constraints facing very vulnerable households, we have two studies that have directly compared those to cost-equivalent cash transfers. The first, in South Sudan, found that cash transfers had similar impacts on consumption, as the holistic program, but that the the complementary aspects of the holistic program allowed participants to increase their wealth and sort of resilience to violence, while the cash grants alone did not allow them to do that. So this sort of aligns with what we see from Uganda, where a graduation-style program increased... A number of outcomes, including income, asset ownership, food security, and subjective well-being, while cash transfers did not have meaningful impacts on any of these outcomes. And so there's definitely something to be said here about the complementary uh, aspects of these types of programs having A positive impact on the recipients um and then finally a program in rwanda which was explicitly designed to be sort of a benchmarking program of a sort of traditional development intervention which was designed to improve nutrition and health outcomes for children under five uh the cash transfer which was equivalent to the cost of delivering that program and the program itself had no impacts on uh the target outcomes, which were children's health, but a much larger cash transfer had a wide wide range of benefits on the outcomes that the, the implementers were trying to reach. And so I think we just need to be be aware that different sizes of cash will have different impacts as, as we could expect. There's also, of course, in addition to the impact question, the question of cost, which I think all of us uh, think about quite a lot. So dispersing cash tends to be cheaper than dispersing in-kind or sort of cash-plus interventions. Uh, in this set of six uh, RCTs that I have on this slide where they did report cost uh, numbers for both types of intervention, we see unequivocally that delivering cash is cheaper. Um, and I put the size of the grant as well as the, the cost of delivering the full in-kind program. So um, not surprising. We also see that beneficiaries may prefer cash over in-kind transfers. Um, So in Ecuador, uh, researchers found that collecting food was costlier to beneficiaries than collecting cash or collecting vouchers for food. Um, And beneficiaries indicated that they, they preferred cash over food transfers or vouchers. Uh, Another study in Yemen actually found that collecting cash was costlier than collecting food, but this was just due to the way that the program was implemented um, and the food being offered at sort of more convenient distribution points. So something to keep in mind when we're thinking about programs is how they're actually going to be delivered. Um, and in a program that worked with uh, internally displaced persons in camps in the De- Democratic Republic of the Congo, researchers found that cash was easier to conceal and more secure than vouchers, largely because households were able to spend the cash whenever they wanted, rather than having to go to these sort of voucher fairs that were set up at specific times and in specific locations. So it was very easy to identify who was receiving these vouchers because they would go to these fairs. We also can think about labeled transfers or vouchers as sort of being a middle ground between the flexibility of cash and the sort of direct control um, of in-kind programs. So we see from a couple studies that while vouchers direct spending towards food, there's no evidence that they improve nutritional outcomes more than cash does. Um, And in the DRC, researchers actually found that vouchers led households to purchase salt in much larger quantities than households who received cash. And the households, when they were asked about this, said that they could sell the cash, sell the salt more, much more easily than the other items that were available at the voucher fair, which suggests that they were seeking that same flexibility that the cash would have offered them. And we can think about adding reminders or information or other sorts of nudges onto cash transfers that may increase their impacts on specific outcomes without taking away the flexibility that beneficiaries do seem to prefer from receiving cash. So some concluding thoughts and a few ideas for policy implications that come from this sort of broad sweep of the literature. I We can see clearly that cash transfers remain an attractive policy option, they tend to have positive effects, at least in the short term, and they're relatively easy to implement um, and lower cost to implement than some of these other alternatives, but they're not the most impactful option for every outcome, and so thinking about what our goals are is really important before we design a program. Uh, increased evidence, of course, can help policymakers weigh the trade-offs that they face when they're designing and implementing programs. So learning more about beneficiary preferences can help weigh this, this tension between providing beneficiaries with autonomy and having impacts on specific outcomes. And learning more about the relative impacts of different program design options can help us weigh this trade-off between the number of people reached by a particular program and the size of the impact per person. And in the future, uh, we can think about leveraging cash transfer infrastructure to deliver complementary interventions, especially if we're working with mobile phones or other sorts of uh, easy distribution points. Uh, We can also think about looking into the different components of those multifaceted programs that seem to be important and have important complementarities to identify which of those is the most impactful and how to deliver those in in a less costly way moving forward. So, I will actually wrap up there. Um, I'll be having office hours soon, uh, but I will join Nathan down here.
1: Um, An initial question I thought was really interesting is on the difference between the distribution of outcomes versus the mean. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I wonder if you have any information on how those may change. For example, the questioner is wondering about like worst case scenarios. You might, and I'm kind of filling in some gaps here, but you might worry that you know for somebody who maybe struggles with addiction, then cash could be like particularly bad. And so you might have some sort of outliers. And I, I'm sure we could come up with a positive scenario mm-hmm. uh, for that as well. But uh, do you know how the distributions vary as opposed to just you, all of these seem to be comparing kind of mean outcomes?
0: Yeah. So it's a really good question. I think that it is definitely something to keep in mind is that for any sort of headline result from an RCT, we are looking at the average in the treatment group relative to the average in the comparison group, and so um, of course there are always there's always the possibility that you know one person or some people did have negative impacts, even if the overall impact is positive. Uh, similarly, there's always potential that you know there's just this big distribution of impacts. Um, these results that I presented are all only when there's sort of enough statistical. Significance and sort of precision to actually say that these impacts are at least on average holding. But um, it's good to keep in mind I don't have like a ready-made answer, especially about each of these programs. But I encourage everyone to look at the papers. Um, they're all linked in the slides.
1: So another question is on the timescale of these mm-hmm. studies. So just maybe give us a little bit of information on kind of how long they ran. And then the obvious follow-up would be, Outside of the length of the actual study itself, what do we know about how persistent the positive effects uh, are? And, you know, should we think, obviously, cash, you know, if the program ends, you're not getting it anymore. But, you know, if you've been taught to fish, you can fish forever, theoretically. So how do we think about that?
0: Yeah, so... The number of RCTs that have very long-run follow-ups is still pretty small. Um, I can say that the graduation approach, which is one of these holistic programs that I mentioned, uh, there is some evidence from India and Bangladesh that even after that program ends, that the impacts continue to persist over time, at least for seven years after the intervention is over. So that does seem to be a case where we are effectively teaching teaching in this in this case women how to fish or how to run sustainable micro enterprises that help them get on a sustainable path out of poverty. Um, for cash, there are a couple studies that have looked at really long run outcomes after the cash transfers end, and so. We can see from a study in Kenya with GiveDirectly and uh, a study in, I believe, Uganda that impacts do tend to fade over time in the long run, which is not surprising given that, as you said, we're no longer giving cash. Um, it does seem to be the case that giving cash transfers, even over you know, the course of nine months or a year, um, doesn't allow people to invest or sort of get over whatever hurdle it was preventing them from having sort of higher incomes in the beginning. So uh, still room to study this. And I think, think about the ways that we can encourage people to be investing cash um, when they receive it or saving it. But as it's been given out now, not, not super exciting for the very long haul.
1: So another question that kind of expands the scope maybe a little bit, but is highly related. What about the uh, conditional cash transfer model? Mm-hmm. And is that a way to kind of get the best of both worlds by both kind of getting the behavior that you want and just giving the cash when it happens.
0: Yeah. So conditional cash transfers are designed to do exactly that, basically encourage investments in human capital, uh, which will ideally help households get out of poverty while still providing consumption support in the immediate term. I'm not as well-versed in that literature because I know it's a lot broader than what I've presented here today, which were largely unconditional. Um, but I do think those have promising results, at least on getting children into school and getting households to sort of take up health behaviors. Um, I am not. I haven't seen a bunch of evidence in either direction on the longer term impacts.
1: Okay. Um, which of the potential downsides of cash transfers, such as unequal bargaining power in households, uh, potential market failures, et cetera, do you kind of worry the most about as they may be particularly difficult to measure or kind of untangle?
0: Mm-hmm. I think one of the ones that I'm excited to see more research on is on the question of spillovers to households who don't receive cash or sort of communities that aren't receiving cash transfers overall. Um, there's some sort of evidence pointing to uh, psycholo- potential psychological impacts on households that are near households that receive cash but who don't receive them themselves. So I think that's one that I'm interested in learning more about and then the intra-household bargaining power question is interesting if we think about um, a couple of the studies that I mentioned on one of the slides where they were giving in-kind or cash grants to micro enterprise owners actually found that women when they received those grants on average didn't see positive impacts on income or uh, profits but That was only the case for women who had another enterprise that was existing in their household. So women were investing the cash not in their own enterprises, but in the ones of most likely their husbands, Uh, but it could have been others in their household as well. And so I think that just thinking about how we're measuring these things is also really important, whether it's at the household level or the enterprise level, will give us potentially different answers. Uh,
1: How do you think about the issues, and I'm I'm sure you think about them a lot, but as someone who is obviously coming from a totally different part of the world and, you know, running experiments in, in faraway places, how do you sort of approach the ethical questions bound up in that? Um, just to make sure that you are kind of, and again, mm-hmm. I'm sure you'd think about this a lot, but to make sure that the organization, as it's doing this work, is treating people with the sort of agency and individual respect that they deserve.
0: Yeah, it's hugely important. And something that we're lucky to work with all the researchers we work with are, are thinking about this quite a lot when they're working with local partners and on, on designing these interventions, um, or just measuring interventions that the local partners themselves have designed. Rarely is it the case that the researchers are just sort of sitting in their ivory towers, designing things and then actually rolling them out on the ground. So um hugely important to keep in mind. I think we always need to stay humble and keep asking questions and keep, I think as Dan was mentioning earlier, just thinking about all the ways that things can go wrong and doing our best to mitigate against them. And not just thinking about them ourselves, but also asking people who are actually in the situations we're trying to address um, for their opinions as well.
1: Okay. Last one, because we're uh, a bit over time here already and I can hear people going out to break. Uh, But one person asked a question about uh, seemingly absence of studies from the Middle East over the last mm-hmm. few years. And this person has uh, specifically worked in Syria and, and felt like there was some good lessons learned there. So is that just kind of an accident of the the studies that you happen to have available or where, where does the Middle East fall into all of this?
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, there are a couple studies that I've seen more recently that are coming from that region, uh, but they are sort of newer. I think it probably has to do with uh, research infrastructure, of course, um ease of sort of coming in and delivering programs and also i think a lot of the ethical questions about delivering programs randomly in a randomized fashion might might be more applicable in a place like the middle east um so i think being responsible about it and about measuring the impact of programs rather than just uh delivering programs to the people who need them the most i think uh i think probably is at play there
1: Awesome. Well, for more, you'll have to follow up with Sam at office hours. But for now, how about another round of applause for J-PAL's Sam Carter?